Ireland's general broadcast and is vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to episode three of the General Broadcast podcast. General Broadcast is a free online learning resource aimed at UK-based student paramedics and newly qualified paramedics. We hope the podcast will provide a useful directory integrating care-based practice examples with the accompanying theory. The podcast are short summaries of topics designed to refresh memories and provide links to other resources for further learning. I'm Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. And I'm Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine with a paramedic background. And this is our second uh, episode focusing on hypothermia and uh, cardiac arrest. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the management of hypothermic cardiac arrest, both in the peri-arrest patient and the modifications that we make to the cardiac arrest algorithm for patients that are hypothermic. If you missed our first episode, you can catch up on generalbroadcastpodcast.org.uk, where we talk about the pathophysiology involved with hypothermia and the road that patients go through to go into cardiac arrest. Just before we get into it, I think there's one really important thing to bear in mind, that although hypothermia is in itself a reversible cause, it does bring with it other issues from hypoxia, a potential VQ mismatch or a ventilation perfusion mismatch from massive vasoconstriction, hypoglycemia from the increased metabolic demands that the patient's gone through trying to uh, create heat and trying to uh, go through thermogenesis, hypovolemia through cold diuresis and potentially metabolic imbalances from extra water that's been processed uh, by the kidneys through the prior hypothermic stages. So there's a number of things that we need to bear in mind and that our management needs to be optimised to try and fix. As we discussed in the last episode, this group of patients are going to present with a variety of symptoms including a reduced GCS and some cardiac dysrhythmias. Although there's no arbitrary figure at which a patient becomes peri-arrest, I think we can both agree, and as we summarised last time, that patients with ECG abnormalities and a reduced, uh, massively reduced GCS certainly fall under that category. So what we're going to look at is managing the peri-arrest patient, and we're going to take an A, B, C, D, E approach to looking at our management. So Simon, do you want to start us off with A? So... We are going to have a patient who's peri-arrest who's going to need some airway management. Uh, eventually, it may go into cardiac arrest, so we would be thinking of, as paramedics, maybe some degree of advanced airway management, either an IGEL or an ETT. Theoretically, we need to be careful with this because both can worsen bradycardia due to vagal stimulation. And the actual movement, as mentioned in the last podcast, can theoretically precipitate a VF arrest due to the agitated myocardium. That being said... Most of the evidence for that is from animal studies and is likely to be quite rare. That being said, if an advanced airway is required, it should obviously be used because the benefit does outweigh the risk. And this is fully supported by the European Resuscitation Council guidelines in special circumstances for hypothermic cardiac arrest. So moving on, breathing, Josh. Uh, Yeah, so breathing. So with regards to oxygen, there's every likelihood that patients are going to present with with low SATs reading. And certainly in these peri-arrest stages, much like we discussed with the temperature management, 
earlier, you're going to have inaccurate readings and you're, you're going to have to, you know, really read your patient, not your monitor. The SATS trace is going to be inaccurate because of shutdown peripheries. The patient's going to be massively vasoconstricted. They're potentially going to be hypotensive as well. So you're not going to have adequate perfusion or accurate readings on the SATS trace. There's a chance that patients are going to be hypoxemic and this could be due to either reduced cardiac output or a, a ventilation perfusion mismatch due to physiological shunt. So where there's massive vasoconstriction, although you're breathing in enough air, you might not have the blood flow going through the lungs to actually make use of that oxygen and actually take that oxygen to the cells. That's what we mean by ventilation perfusion mismatch. So there's a, there's a very good chance that they might be hypoxemic, but either way, it's not an oxygenation issue. It's a perfusion issue. So by increasing the amount of oxygen that they're breathing in, it's not necessarily going to help. So increasing their FiO2 is not necessarily going to help. And, you know, there, there's an argument that it could potentially do the opposite because oxygen you know, is a basic constrictor. To further complicate issues, hypothermic patients are going to have a leftward shift of the oxygen's association curve. So that means haemoglobin is going to hang on to our oxygen molecules more and it's not going to release oxygen as readily to ischemic tissues. And there is a reason for that, which I've linked in the article, but uh, I don't really understand thermodynamics. That's basically the, uh, the reason, uh, something to do with thermodynamics. So my thoughts on this are we can give oxygen. I wouldn't necessarily expect it to make a big difference necessarily because there's a lot of other reasons that uh, our patients may not have oxygen in the right place. But if we think it's going to make a difference, if we, if we think the patient might benefit from an increased FiO2, then by all means give oxygen. But actually what we want to be doing is focusing on rewarming. We're going to, we're going to solve some of our oxygenation issues by solving the main problem, which is the hypothermia. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And um, I think you're definitely backed up by both the um, JR count guidelines and the BTS guidelines on that, Josh, that make it clear that um, in certain situations, and they list hypothermia as one of them, that pulse oximetry is going to give you unreliable readings. And obviously, we should be prepared for that and, and then treat more clinically. So I would just add that if you think that the cause of the cardiac arrest is a hypothermia caused by something like drowning, then hypoxia is going to be a much bigger issue. And therefore, oxygen is probably quite important. But as you said, otherwise, it's questionable as to how much it's going to help our patients. Okay, so circulation then, Simon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so as we already mentioned, um, when as we approach the more moderate to severe um, end of hypothermia, we are going to be having some ECG changes and arrhythmias that we're going to notice. One of the first things we might notice is a, uh, a bradycardic patient. But as Josh alluded to in the last podcast, these patients are not bradycardic due to vagal stimulation, um, and therefore giving them any uh, atropine to increase the heart rate is unlikely to be uh, effective. Um, and what's more, I, I do believe it's contraindicated in, in JR Calc, which is probably um, a sensible uh, sensible contraindication. What's your thoughts on it, Josh? Uh, yeah, pretty much as you said, it, it, it's it's not a vagal problem. So it's it's to do with the conduction in the SA node due to the hypothermia. So the best antiarrhythmic this patient's going to get is uh, is warming them up. So as well as atropine not being indicated, neither would be uh, pacing if you have critical care capability with you. And as Josh has just said, the best way to manage uh, peri-arrest arrhythmias is just to warm your patients. In fact, the European Resuscitation Guidelines 
make it quite clear that arrhythmias other than VF tend to revert spontaneously as core temperatures increase. And actually, there's very other little management you need to do apart from warming at this stage. Carrying on with C, as we've mentioned, the, the patient might become hypovolemic due to fluid shift. And therefore, it's probably quite important that we do some degree of fluid resuscitation as these patients are likely going to be volume depleted. Yeah, definitely. And if we can do that with warmed fluid, that would obviously be more beneficial. It's not really going to raise the core temperature of the patient, 500 mils or a litre of warm fluid, um, but it will potentially stop them getting any colder. So I tend to, certainly when I was on the road, on particularly cold days, I would keep a couple of litres, sorry, a couple of bags of uh, fluid in the cab with us. So at least when we had the heater on in there, it was uh, it was staying warm. In my service now, we carry warm fluids with us every day. So uh, we've got two litres of, of warm fluid. And I know some critical care models will uh, have fluid warming devices with them as well. So if we can give them warm fluid, that would be beneficial. Yeah, I'd agree, Josh. And I think a lot of, especially critical care services and, and in hospital, we have proper fluid warmers that can warm fluids up to a, a set temperature, which we're unlikely to have on a paramedic ambulance pre-hospitally. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, definitely agree with putting a bag of fluids or a couple of bag of fluids in the cab with you to keep them at room temperature uh, and, and temperature in the vehicle. I'd probably avoid putting them directly over the heater in the front windscreen, which I've seen people do, or um, even more concerningly, seen people warm them in, in bowls of external boiling water in patients' properties for administration while it's unlikely to heat up the the fluid to a dangerously high temperature i think it's a little bit uncontrolled and it's probably a practice that because we don't know we should probably avoid so i would say just keeping them in a, in a nice normal temperature that we're comfortable in is is sensible cool so moving on to disability then there's there's potentially going to be problems under under d uh, likely confusion likely reduced gcs if the patient is so hypothermic that we consider them to be peri-arrest. And these are likely going to be down to poor cerebral perfusion or poor cerebral oxygenation, essentially the same thing, each of which can be solved by warming a patient up. I think we're starting to see a pattern here because, again, that is the issue. The reason you've got poor cerebral perfusion is because the patient is cold. What's really important, however, is to not forget the potential differentials the big one is going to be hypoglycemia and i was always thought a b c d e f which is don't ever forget glucose so we we need to make sure that we're we're bearing uh, in mind that, that we need to test this patient's sugars which in itself might be might be tricky but we need to rule out a hypoglycemic event running concurrently with this hypothermic one yeah absolutely 100% agree with that there uh, there's nothing more embarrassing uh, coming from experience of rocking up uh, in A&E thinking that your colleague has done a blood sugar and the stroke that you've just pre-alerted into recess actually turning out to, to, to be a hypo. I was very lucky that it, it wasn't, but um, when asked what, what was the blood sugar and me and my crewmate looked at each other and neither of us had actually done one, both thinking the other person had done it to exclude it. So it was uh, lucky that it wasn't a hypo could be an embarrassing moment and obviously definitely something we should check definitely differentials and the other things i would add to that as well is just to make sure that you do uh, you know a check over the body for things like head injury uh, and other causes that, that might affect your level of consciousness with d drugs 
alcohol and those sorts of signs, especially when you might get a mixed picture of drugs, alcohol and hypothermia. All really valuable things to consider. Uh, so now we've moved on to E, which is obviously exposure. And this is probably one of the biggest things that we need to think about and probably the thing that we're going to think about most often in these hypothermic patients, because broadly speaking, the hypothermic patients we see are going to be to the to the lower end of the spectrum. It's going to be rare that we see critically unwell hypoperiodic hypothermic patients. So we need to do everything we can to to, to maximise our ability to to rewarm these patients. And so we need to think about the four main areas that are involved with heat loss, which is evaporation, conduction convection and radiation. Do you want to talk about evaporation, Simon? I think the first stage of managing uh, the hypothermic patient is we can't leave them in wet clothes. So if it's, especially if it's been a water incident or they're out in the environment and they are uh, cold and wet, we need to get them somewhere dry and we need to remove that cold layer because uh, if we don't, things are just going to get worse for our patients. So completely top to bottom, cut down uh, and remove all those wet clothes and then obviously start to layer them up again. I think before you go cutting things off, I think we need to ensure that we are in a reasonable position to put something else in place. So absolutely, if we've got some hospital gowns or we've got plenty of blankets that we can put close to the skin, then get the clothes off as as quick as we can. But if we're out somewhere quite rurally or uh, we're perhaps in an RV and backup is going to be a long, long time, it might be reasonable to, to take the clothes off, ensure they're wrung out as much as we can, and then still have a barrier there. Because what we don't want to do is uh, completely ruin our ability for, for managing some of the other areas of exposure, like conduction and convection, just by eliminating evaporation. So if we can put some, some dry clothes in place, that's, that's, that's fine. But um, we might have to think a little bit laterally if, if we haven't got any other clothes or anything else we, we can put in place and clothes. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really valuable point. And, and probably something there I just took for granted. Having worked on an RRV for many years, I quite regularly restocked my blankets. So my back seat would be really good pile of blankets in, in mo- most times of the year to be honest but specifically in the colder months of the year just to make sure that I've got plenty of layers both to protect the patient over them but also and I don't know what your thoughts are on this Josh about getting something underneath them especially if it's a trauma patient if they're if they're on the floor um, and trying to mm. to get them off the cold surface if that's at all possible. Yeah that kind of brings us on to the next point of conduction I think I think people are quite familiar with the fact that patients lose an awful lot of heat through the floor and so putting a barrier in between them ground is uh, is great even something as thin as cardboard you know there's a reason that homeless people sleep on cardboard it's by having that that small layer uh, of of air in between them and the ground makes a huge difference around the amount of heat that they lose so the next Stage is, is convection. So ideally in the ambulance, we'll be able to provide convection warmth via the heater. I mean, they're not great. They take a little while to spool up, but we should be able to generate a, a relatively warm environment in the back of the ambulance if we can. But again, if we have to manage the patient outside, that becomes quite tricky. Uh, I know I've used uh, an RRV as a windbreaker to quite good effect whilst I've been waiting as backup or waiting for backup and even just getting members of the public to hold windbreakers up using blankets to 
to uh, limit the amount of, of heat loss through convection. Interestingly, uh, what the mountain rescue use a lot is bubble wrap. So bubble wrap is a brilliant heat trapper. Uh, and I know there's some services, certainly the ones that are, are more uh, more rural, people like mountain rescue and coast guard, who do carry huge amounts of bubble wrap to bundle around the patient to limit heat loss through convection. And I know in my service, we've discussed whether or not we're going to carry it for our, for our um rsis and things like that yeah it's good that you mentioned your rrb it's you know it's a really useful resource to use when you don't have a dca obviously if your patient is mobile you could put them in your car um, and use your heaters to warm them up if that's not possible for whatever reason because they're a mobile trauma um, but they you are outside using it as you quite rightly said to provide shelter from the wind having heaters on a full blast even some heat coming out of an open door next to your patient will provide some warmth around the the immediate environment and uh, obviously as well it will provide light to, in those situations and not just that to keep you warm as well because if you're outside waiting for backup for a long time obviously we need to think about us as the provider's safety as well so you know making sure that we have got all of our PPE keeping ourselves warm so that we can provide the best care for our patients. So that brings us on to a, the final point of radiation and I think this is going to lead inevitably onto your pet peeve of foil blankets. <laughs> so do you want to uh, talk a little bit about radiation? Um, um, yeah, my uh, definitely my pet peeve is the foil blanket. They have a purpose, so obviously they're on vehicles. Uh, they're really effective to stop people getting cold. So if you ha are going to do a, especially events work or you are called to uh, an event where, say for example, a marathon or a, a triathlon where someone is already warm, and to prevent them getting cold, you can wrap them in a foil blanket. If you think about your food as you make it if you wrap a hot thing in a foil blanket it will radiate the heat back into itself and it will keep it warm but the exact opposite happens if you want to keep something cold so we use foil just as much to keep things cold so it will radiate cold back into something you want to keep cold therefore if your patient is cold and you wrap them straight into a foil blanket as the bottom layer that is going to radiates the coldness back into them and make your patient colder and it is one of the things that i find most irritating and when i rock up and go to find cold and hypothermic patients that their bottom layer is is a foil blanket so they have a place josh how would you use your foil blanket so we we need to use them as part of a blanketing process and i'm a firm believer in maximizing the potential of our equipment we we really don't have a lot to warm patients up pre-hospitally and in fact you know that that's not something that we can achieve particularly quickly so we need to maximize the the, the ability of the equipment we've got so full blankets are great but they have to have an external heat source for an already cold patient like you've said to radiate that heat back into them so i would probably put a fleece blanket uh, on top of my patient, assuming they're dry, then an external heated blanket. So uh, we've got ones that uh, have an exothermic reaction as soon as they get exposed to air. The downside is they take 30 minutes to warm up. So you need to crack them 30 minutes ideally before you, you need them, which again, pre-hospitally isn't ideal. What I tend to do is if it's particularly cold shift, when I've been working on the RRV and, and 
where, when I did worked on the road, uh, I worked relatively wearily, so I always knew backup was going to be a long time. I would crack one of the blankets at the start of my shift if I got anyone outside who was cold, particularly on a Friday or Saturday night where it was likely to be someone who's intoxicated, uh, I'd have an already warm blanket there. If I didn't go to anyone, then I had uh, a warm blanket to, to cuddle uh, <laughs> when I was on standby. So yeah, they're great. And then a full blanket on top that radiates the heat back in uh, and it also acts as a barrier uh, to that convection if, if there's any wind there as well so so they like you say they do have a place but they have to be used properly just because they're silver and shiny doesn't mean that they're they're better i think that's really sensible using uh if you've got one obviously uh, my old trust had them as well the exothermic reaction blankets they're really useful uh when already heated um so if you've got active rewarming definitely go with that if you don't then what i tend to use the foil blanket for is more to shield patients from wind if you haven't got say a car or from rain they're really good for people to hold over the top of patients that are on the floor to uh to deflect more water off them if you can't get them to, into any other shelter cut a hole in the middle with a yeah. great poncho um and um then i just tend to layer lots of normal blankets and i there's a lot of argument so a lot of my colleagues will layer blankets and then put foil blankets over the top of them i can see their thought process that the the bottom layers will generate heat and then the foil will reflect it in i think yes theoretically that that works but i think you need to put some heat into them first and then apply the foil i think personally still if they're cold you're just reflecting cold air so again i, I wouldn't use a foil blanket at, in the first instance um, even with layered blankets underneath it but but that's just my my thoughts on the matter so one of the things that i just wanted to touch on and i'm not going to go into too much depth because the recess room podcast covered it quite extensively on their hypothermia podcast but there's always been a rumor i was certainly taught it and i don't know if you've been taught it simon that there, there was a concern about a reperfusion injury from uh, if you warm a patient too quickly, you could return cold blood, in inverted commas, back to the heart and potentially throw them into an arrhythmia. Or you could have massive rewarming hypotension where you warm them up and they vasodilate and then they go into cardiac arrest because they've had a massive uh, hypertensive episode. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I have heard of it. Um, personally, I don't think it's an issue. I, I, I don't think pre any of our techniques are going to actively warm patients quick enough. Yeah, so so it's completely you know wrong. It's not a not a thing that we have to worry about at all. We should aim to warm people up as quick as we can because all of our pre-hospital warming methods are slow comparatively. You know, they're um, what what was the thing you found, Simon? Point point five degree. Yeah, degree for, for, for most of the methods that we can do. Yeah, and I I, I just. I don't think for us as pre-hospital providers, it's going to be an issue uh, of rewarming someone too quickly because just frankly, none of the techniques we, we can apply will we'll do this. And, and I think Resus Room broke it down even more, uh, more so than that, saying what interventions warm people up so how, you know, how they'll quickly, however many degrees an hour. Um, there was a paper by Brown et al, which I'll link in, in the article that basically said that so long as you're not doing, I think, peritoneal lavage, warm fluid was the only thing that had this vasodilation effect. And that's clearly not anything that we're going to be doing pre-hospitally. So all of our all of our warming methods 
we should, we should just crack on and uh, warm patients up as, as quick as we can. The reality of things is a lot of what we do is stopping them getting colder. So we need to, you know, we need to preserve what heat there is in the patient already and aggressively manage these patients to prevent them getting any colder uh, and then get them somewhere warm to, to be warmed up slowly, which in these patients that you know have a core temperature of like 30 degrees, it's going to take several hours to get them warmed up. The only thing I would cool. add, um, and it comes on nicely under E when we're, we're moving people, is that, that we should initiate pre-hospital rewarming, but it shouldn't delay mobilizing to towards a hospital so i think it's something that we could very easily start and crack on on route and and use that time wisely to get someone to to hospital and whilst we're on the point of extrication i think it's important to reiterate again that certainly these really unwell or these really hypothermic patients are going to have a really easily agitated myocardium and as we discussed in the last the last podcast there's the risk that we could throw someone who's in af into VF or, you know, a patient who's got those cardiac dysrhythmias, we could potentiate cardiac arrest. So we need to be really gentle with how we're moving these patients. And it's very much a case of slow is smooth and smooth is quick. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. So let's talk about cardiac arrest management then. The, the modifications that we're going to make for someone who uh, is in cardiac arrest. And there's a number of modifications to the ALS algorithm. These are kind of touched on by the RESUS or, or by, by the UK RESUS Council, but it's not very prescriptive, is it? It's, it's not expanded on a huge no. deal in the UK RESUS guidelines, whereas there's a big section from ILCOR, uh, and, and sorry, there's a big section by the uh, European Yeah, RESUS absolutely. I, I have to admit, I went and looked back through my advanced life support manual from my ALS course. Uh, and yeah, I was a little bit um, taken aback by how little they mentioned hyper, hypothermia, given the fact it is a reversible cause of cardiac arrest. But as you alluded to, there is much more information in the uh, European um, Resuscitation Council guidelines, which I, I would say probably most of our UK Resuscitation Council guidelines are in line with anyway. So I, I would use these to inform my practice. The first of which is extending a pulse check. So... We've already said these patients are potentially going to be really bradycardic. And so pulse checks can be extended up to 60 seconds in patients that are thought to be hypothermic, as we don't want to confuse severe bradycardia for someone who is in cardiac arrest. But if there's any doubt, start CPR. And as we've already alluded to, management of arrhythmias, the best antiarrhythmic agent uh, and um, support for, for bradycardia and for low blood pressure is rapid rewarming. So let's get their temperature back up and get them going to hospital. Ordinarily, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't advocate moving people in cardiac arrest. I'm very much, uh, if you're in cardiac arrest, we, we stay on scene and we manage it with the proviso of unless there's something that we desperately need elsewhere. And this is one of those cases that we need to get this patient rewarmed. We're not going to be stopping because because they're a pre-hospital hypothermic cardiac arrest. So we, we, we are going to be going somewhere and we need to take them somewhere that they can be warmed quickly and that place is hospital. So I would be advocating, yes, doing BLS and yes, managing this patient in cardiac arrest, but I would be looking to extricate them and get going so mentioning that and getting people to hospital quickly, we all know from evidence that um, 
doing CPR in the back of the ambulance while its effectiveness is, is definitely questionable from the literature. Safety issues are obviously quite a big concern. What's more, someone who's hypothermic is likely to have quite a stiff and uncompliant chest due to how cold they are. So I think this is a, a time when we really need to prioritise using mechanical chest compressors if these are locally available. So definitely um, get your crit care teams involved if they're the only people that have got them. But obviously, if you've got them on your ambulance, I, I would highly um, advise using them. What do you think on that, Josh? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just crit care. I know certainly our local heart teams are carrying Lucas also compressors now. Uh, so they and, and some services, the, the OOs or the operations officers carry them on their vehicles. So they aren't on every frontline ambulance. Uh, we don't have that luxury, but they are about. And it's just thinking how we can get this patient on one. As yeah. Um, so... If we're moving our patient, Josh, and you said obviously get getting them to hospital, what's your thought on on destination um, to hospital? Obviously, a lot of this is going to be local availability and what hospitals and specialisms you have locally. Have you got any thoughts on a particular destinations for these patients that might be more beneficial than than other hospitals? So, if this is if this is what we think is this, you know a salvageable hypothermic arrest, and it's a primary hypothermic cardiac arrest. We're probably not going to be stopping that until they have been rewarmed to a suitable level and, and the core temperature is to a suitable level. And so if they're profoundly hypothermic, we want to be getting them somewhere where they've got the ability for either ECMO, uh, extracorporeal rewarming, uh, or cardiac bypass, because that's going to be the quickest way of rewarming these patients. So. I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people know where the nearest bypass or ECMO centre is. I know there's a number in London, but outside of London, I think they're quite sparse and they're, they're quite few and far between. So that might not always be an option for people. But if there is, you, you know, if you're equidistant or near enough equidistant between a, pay, a, a place that might have cardiac bypass, I would certainly be heading for that. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree 100% as someone who works in, um, in, in ED. I think if you have the option maybe to travel a little bit further locally, but you do have a, you know, two EDs, one that's maybe a, a DGH and one that's more of a cardiac arrest centre and somewhere that does do ECMO and ECLS, and, and can do bypass and rewarming, I think that'd be really beneficial for your patients because obviously in ED, you know, we've got um, extra things that we can add in such as bear huggers and warmed, continuous warmed fluids. But to actually get someone onto bypassable life support where we can rewarm them as we're resuscitating them in a specialist centre, if you've got that available locally, I would I would highly advise a, a discussion and, and a bypass. And, and and I think it's important. There's a distinction between ECMO and cardiac bypass. ECMO is is more rare. Cardiac bypass, although still rare, is is more widely available. And something else we need to bear in mind is on our atmist pre alert. We want to give an early atmist, and we want to specify we think this is a primary hypothermic arrest, and we think this patient needs bypass because. I'm sure it's not something that is used regularly. They probably have to blow the dust off the machine. And in some cases, they might have to call an external team in or an external team down to the department. So the, the more warning we can give the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
We've now picked hopefully our destination hospital and we're, we've, we've still got a cardiac arrest patient ourselves. So what about defibrillation, Josh? So uh, you, as we said in the last podcast, patients' temperatures deteriorate, they're likely to have uh, arrhythmias and then eventually likely to go have a VF arrhythmia. So, so obviously we're going to defibrillate that, right? Yes, we are. And this is where the, the guidelines become difficult to interpret. So the European guidelines suggest you can defibrillate VF arrest that's hypothermic, but it suggests that you should attempt this a maximum of three times, and then you shouldn't reattempt until the temperature is above 30 degrees. Now, this is something I got quite sort of pent up on because we have no way of having that new, that numerical figure of 30 degrees pre-hospitally. As we discussed in the last podcast, we don't have any accurate temperature measuring devices freely available to us. So it's not overly helpful to, to have that stipulation. So I was just editing this podcast and thought I would quickly jump in here just to make a point clear that Simon and I have said uh, that there's no way of accurately measuring temperature in cardiac arrest pre-hospitally. Now that's not strictly true. Some services may have esophageal temperature probes or other methods of gaining a core body temperature with some degree of accuracy in cardiac arrest. Uh, what we're referring to is most frontline paramedics responding on ambulances will lack an accurate temperature measuring device. So if you've got critical care support and your critical care teams carry a soft gel temperature probes or rectal temperature probes, then they may be able to give some more numerical and accurate temperature directed therapy. But for the purpose of this conversation we're assuming and we're looking at frontline paramedic practice uh, on board NHS ambulances and currently to our knowledge there's nowhere in there's nowhere currently in frontline NHS ambulance services that would offer this kind of accurate and appropriate temperature management uh, most services will have a tympanic temperature probe or an infra infrared forehead scanner something like that which uh, as we discussed in the last episode wouldn't be appropriate for this case okay i'll let you get back to it i think in my personal practice and i'm sure this may differ between people i would attempt defibrillation a couple of times and if the patient was still in a refractory vf i would do everything i can to begin rewarming probably before i reattempted so i would make sure that we're in a sheltered environment we've got clothes off we've got rewarming blankets on as much as we can we've got external heaters on as much as we can and then there's really no way for us to tell whether someone is above 30 degrees or not so i would probably then uh, start defibrillation so yeah i'd agree with that it was actually a question i got asked by a, a student paramedic who was preparing for their university als oski and i think they, they were approaching the subject more of a concern about not defibrillating a patient whose temperature was higher than that or defibrillating a patient's temperature was lower than that and and getting it wrong and getting them in trouble and i I think i think there's a lot of sometimes fear of doing things wrong what me and the advice from you know that i gave them and also in discussion with the ed consultant that was running session with me was that 
I think we have to make a judgment call. We are making difficult decisions with not very much information. And I think we, we need to make a decision and, and go with it. And I think as long as we can stand there and, and hand on heart and say we were following the, you know, the evidence-based practice that we thought was right for the patient at that time and trying to, to do everything we could for that patient right, I, I think you, you, you'll be fine. Um, you know, there is no way that we can prove temperatures, um, as we've alluded to, without a more advanced monitoring, unless you've got teams that can do esophageal um, probe monitoring. So I think we just have to make a decision and, and go with it. And, and I would argue that if you defibrillate someone in VF um, whose temperature is lower or you don't defibrillate someone whose temperature is, is higher, but you made the clinical decision and documented that clinical decision that, you know, that's why you did it because you were trying to do what you thought was right. Then I think that's, that's all we can ask. Yeah. I, I, you've got to think about what the therapy for this patient is. The therapy that, that is going to cardiovert this patient is rewarming plus maybe a shock dependent on, you know, how far gone they are. So like you say, as long as you are doing everything in all good conscience, you know, realistically, it's going to be a bad day at the office if we're seeing a truly hypothermic patient. So, uh, and, and it's going to be an even worse day at the office if we're a prolonged period or a prolonged transport time from hospital. So as long as you're doing everything you can to maximally rewarm this patient, I, I think a normal defibrillation protocol is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Them. So we are doing our basic life support. We have made a decision about whether we're going to um, defibrillate as, as normal or whether we're going to have three attempts based upon sort of rough temperature ranges. Drugs, Josh, what about cardiac arrest drugs? Their evidence full stop, obviously, as we know from current literature, is being questioned. The new recess guidelines are going to come out next year, which we may have some changes there. We're, we're not sure what's going to happen. But thinking currently, hypothermic cardiac arrest, what are we going to do with our drugs in compared to a normal ALS regime? So again, the, the guidelines, the, the ERC guidelines, because the UK Resource Council guidelines are not very explicit. The ERC would suggest uh, withholding drugs below 30 degrees Celsius and doubling drug dosage interval times above 30 degrees Celsius. And the concern here is that the metabolism of the drugs is likely to be reduced the the distribution of drugs is likely to be reduced because of massive vasoconstriction, uh, especially if we're using a peripheral IV line to give them. So it's going to be, uh, the, the concern is that it'll build up potentially toxic levels or you'll get a ROSC or rewarm them and then they'll get hit by a huge bolus of adrenaline or antiarrhythmic that was being held in the, in the peripheries. Again, I think this is a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because you don't know at what point you've gone above 30 degrees Celsius. My personal practice, I think I would prioritise an intraosseous line. So I would probably go for a humeral head IO just because in my own thoughts, in my own head, that's likely to have better perfusion than a peripheral IV cannula. And I think I would apply the same principle as defibrillation i would try to maximally warm this patient get everything we can get in the back of the truck or get inside and provide some rewarming whilst doing standard bls and then i would probably give the drugs with with doubled dosage intervals 
Now, again, people are going to have different opinions on that. People are going to have different things that their service supports. Some service might not support using the ERC guidelines. That's just what I would do in my, in my own practice. Completely agree with that. That would be my approach too. And also, I think it's the approach that's adopted by JALCALC. So um, that's always reassuring to withhold drugs if we believe that the, the temperature is under 30 degrees. And then over that, uh, until we reach normothermia, to uh, double the interval. Uh, between between our drugs. Uh, I think another little thing that we might just need to bear in mind is that capnography readings may be quite low and that isn't necessarily a prognosticator of uh, how well the arrest is going. There is going to be a massive, as we've said before, massive ventilation perfusion mismatch. So although you should get an end tidal reading, it will probably be lower than normal. Definitely, and um, obviously uh, we need to just reiterate there that um, we're not going to be calling a cardiac arrest and we're not going to be ceasing resuscitation in in the main for a hypothermic patient is one of the exclusions in the pre-hospital environment. Obviously, I'm sure everyone's heard the, the adage, you can't be dead until you're warm and dead. This is definitely true. Um, so you, resuscitation sometimes uh, within hospital can go on for several hours to to get a patient back up to a normal temperature before a senior clinician will make uh, a decision to cease resuscitation. I think the only exception to that would be is if, and again, this is probably sensible to most people, if there were injury, other injuries incompatible with life, such as a decapitation. We're going to come across these things so infrequently, it's, it's going to be very unlikely that we would be in a position where we would need to terminate or, or we would be indicated to terminate this uh, this resuscitation. There may be cases, like you say, where we don't start, but, uh, but that's a different sort of kettle of fish. Okay, so that brings us to the end of, of this podcast. Hopefully that's been a beneficial summary for people. We've talked about managing these patients when they're peri-arrest. We need to be careful about the way that we manage their airway. We need to give consideration to the fact that although we might have low oxygen readings, they may not be overly reliable. These patients don't really have uh, an oxygen problem. They have a problem accessing that oxygen in their bloodstream, so it's very much a circulatory issue that we need to manage. These patients might have cardiac dysrhythmias, they're going to have electrical problems in their hearts, but they will also be hypovolemic with potentially electrolyte imbalances that we need to address. So we need to consider how we're going to give these patients fluids and the best route that we're going to be giving them if, uh, if they're peripherally shut down. These patients are going to potentially have uh, an impacted GCS. They might be confused or they might be uh, very low on the end of the, the GCS spectrum. So we need to managing that by rewarming them but also not forgetting other differentials such as hypoglycemia which could be concurrent with a hypothermia. We need to maximise our ability to rewarm these patients giving consideration to the ways that we use heat through evaporation, conduction, convection and radiation and maximise what tools that we do have pre-hospitally although understanding that they, they aren't effective at rewarming these patients particularly quickly. When we extricate them, we need to be very gentle. We need to 
give consideration to that easily agitated myocardium and handle these patients really, really gently. And if we are unlucky enough to find them in cardiac arrest, there's a number of modifications that we need to make to our practice. But the ultimate antiarrhythmic, the ultimate treatment for these patients is rewarming. So we need to ensure that we are all constantly moving towards an area on which we can rewarm them. So thank you very much for listening. I hope that's been beneficial uh, and join us for the next episode. Take care.